This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Catherine McCormick about her new book, Women in the Picture, What Culture Does with Female Bodies, which was published by Norton in November of 2021. Dr. McCormick is an author, independent curator, and consultant lecturer at the Sotheby's Institute of Art and the University of Oxford. She earned a PhD in art history from the University College London, where she has worked as a teaching fellow, and in 2016, she won the University of York's International Postdoctoral Writing Prize. She is the author of The Art of Looking Up, a collection of 40 fine art ceilings from around the world, and has been published in the New European, Harper's Bazaar UK, and The Independent. The book she wrote that we'll be discussing today, Women in the Picture, explores how culture teaches us to see and value women, their bodies, and their lives. She investigates how women have been bound by a series of restrictive roles, Venus, maiden, wife, mother, monster, and how these roles have become so codified by patriarchal culture that we scarcely even see them. Catherine illuminates the assumptions behind these stereotypes and surveys a wide range of visual material, from fashion photographs, advertisements, and social media, to masterpieces of Western art by the likes of Praxiteles, Titian, and Botticelli. She then boldly counters these depictions by turning to the work of women like Bert Morisot, Faith Ringgold, and Carol Walker, who offer alternative images for exploring women's identity, sexuality, race, and power. I'm thrilled to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Catherine McCormick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
We are thrilled to have you, and I wonder if you might begin by telling us just a little bit about yourself before we dive into the book. Uh, I always like to ask authors, sort of, where were you born? Where did you attend graduate school, which I just briefly mentioned, but you can talk about maybe any mentors you had, and then ultimately how you came to be the curator and author that you are today. Okay, thank you, Alison. Uh, well, I was born in London. Um, I was born in West London um, near a central hub called Paddington. And um, I went to school in Hammersmith and then university was mostly in London at University College London. I spent a period of that in Italy studying art history and studying Italian. Um, but my PhD and my master's were at UCL. And when I was there in the early 2000s, um, as an undergraduate, um, it was very much a hub of feminist thinking. So very much the feminist scholarship that had emerged in the UK in the 1980s and the 1990s. So Professor Tamar Garb, who is still at UCL, uh, was a mentor, uh, was really the professor who introduced me to thinking in a feminist way about images. Um, but it was something that I didn't specialise in until a little bit later. Also around that time was Griselda Pollock, who was until very recently uh, Professor of Art History at the University of Leeds. Um, and she was a real touchstone in that time, I remember going to an exhibition talk that she gave at the Tate Modern, and it must have been just a couple of years after the Tate Modern opened, or maybe even the year in which it opened in 2000. And uh, she was talking about sex workers and borders in a photography exhibition. And that really sort of switched me on to thinking about depictions of women and the, and the politics of those and the ways in which artists and curators could make interventions, political interventions into feminism and thinking about women's lives in the contemporary and also drawing on the past. Um, so those, those were the really significant moments. What did I do then? It's always kind of going back into the mists of time a little bit. Um, I mean, where I got to where I am now, um, like I said, my even my PhD, I wasn't particularly focused on a um, feminist angle. But really what happened while I was um, studying for my PhD, I became a mother. And that really influenced the course of my intellectual and political thinking in really profound ways. Um, and I became one might say radicalized, if you like. I think the experience of trying to be an academic and the experience of pregnancy and motherhood and how that was interpreted and accommodated or not accommodated by the university and graduate setting really got me thinking into what I wanted to commit myself to. And it was during that time that I was studying, I was teaching at Sotheby's Institute, which is very local to UCL. And I was teaching on a variety of different semester courses, quite often with American students. And I said to them, I really want to do a feminist art history course. So I founded the Women in Art study program which started as a summer school and then expanded into different iterations that looked at race and gender as well as an introduction to ways of talking about race and gender in art history because I felt that there weren't many courses and opportunities for both public and uh, enrolled students to, to engage with those. Um, and out of that, I uh, became involved with a gallery in London um, called Richard Saltoon and uh, you know it was actually one of these occasions where it was being in the right place at the right time. I saw on their exhibition programming that they were 
planning an exhibition uh, devoted to contemporary art and motherhood as part of a year-long programme where they were committing to only showing female artists. And I got in touch and I said, well, I want to hear more about this. Maybe I can take my students here. This is a topic I'm teaching on and researching. And they said, well, would you like to curate the exhibition? And that really was a key moment of serendipity for me. And that was a real turning point, I think, in my career that has brought me to more projects, more uh, catalogue writing and the sorts of work that I'm making for a very public facing audience. So I would consider myself someone that was draws on my academic experience and training, but most of my work now is committed to public facing projects, whether that's writing books that are general access or being involved in um, exhibitions that are open to the general public and Mm. communicating these ideas to a wider audience. Yeah. Well, this is sort of leads me perfectly to the question that I wanted to ask you next, though I feel like as an art historian, if I don't stop and pause for a moment and say how in awe I am of a pedigree like Tamar Garb and Griselda Pollock. I mean, that's that's an incredible lineage to come from. I think it's very interesting, too. I come from a similar kind of hub in terms of my undergraduate, studying with Norma Browdy and Mary Garrod, which, you know, are the in some ways, the kind of American, along with Linda Nachlin, not exactly equivalent. I don't know that any of these women are equivalent or switchable, outable in terms of each other. But um, it took me a while to come to a kind of feminist practice within art history as well. It's interesting how you can be trained by some of these forces, and yet it takes you, like you said, kind of living through various things, becoming radicalized, so Mm -hmm. to speak, in various ways before it starts to inflect the work. But you said a moment ago that yeah, this is a book that is meant for a general audience, that you, your work is out there in the world in the sense of trying to get as many readers as possible. And I always like to follow up kind of this initial background question by asking specifically, how did you come to write this one, Women in the Picture? And in your case, I wanted to ask quite specifically, did you always have kind of the trade press general audience in mind? Or did you go through, you know, the crucible that we go through sometimes where you're thinking, oh, should I pitch this to university presses? You know, how do I want to do this? Do I work with a literary agent? I would kind of love to hear how that aspect came about for you too. Sure, absolutely. So it was always... um meant intended for a trade press um and it was always intentionally um organized so that it would have a low price point i think um with my UK publisher in particular, it's a it's a very economical price point. I think that probably translates to the Norton edition in the US as well. It's um, went straight to paperback in the US. In the UK, we did have a hardback edition, but it was still, you know, I would say less than a good bottle of wine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just took the back from for our at least for the 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 listeners here in the US, it is twenty two ninety five on the back of the book. Though I think when I looked at it on on the Barnes and Noble website yesterday to put together the intro, they had a 10% discount. So you can get it probably for right around 20 bucks. Right. Okay. So a good bottle of wine, an acceptable (laughs) bottle of wine. Um, So I always wanted it. And and actually, I completely bypassed the academic market for a couple of reasons. One in which I don't feel that the ideas that I'm drawing on here are something new. Um, I feel that I'm drawing on a rich heritage of 
the academics that you mentioned, both in the US, Linda Nocklin, Mary Garrard, Norma Broody, um, and then the UK um, scene, if you like, the feminist academic scene of scholarship, which also includes Linda Need, who was absolutely seminal, um, especially the influence of her work on the female nude and thinking about Venus and the body of Venus and Velasquez's painting, which I talk about in detail. Um, so I wanted it to be a extension of the privilege that I had had in being able to study under those um, leading lights of um, feminist scholarship and having access to that work. Um, and I really felt there was an absence in that, the translation of that into a mainstream audience and especially a gallery going audience. And that became very immediate to me in a number of shows I went to when I started to think about this project, which was as far back as 2017, 2018. Um, so I really felt that, um, I mean, we can talk about it now, if you like, if this is a good moment to think about the uh, Picasso and Modigliani shows I went to, which I talk about in the opening of the book, sure, um, International Women's Day in March 2018. Um, I had a, a sort of baby strapped to my chest and I was walking around the Tate Modern, which is the... Um, you know, our, our principal collection of modern and contemporary art in London, the flagship, if you like. And I was so struck by the way in which the work of two modern masters that revolved around the depiction of a nude female body and drew on mythologized ideas of the sexual energy of the male artist as being part of his creative brilliance, how that was being presented in an unproblematic way. And, you know, this was just around the time of Me Too erupting as a mm -hmm. mainstream movement and entering into public consciousness. And I felt that there was so much happening politically out Outside, in the way people were talking about gender and women's bodies outside of the exhibition space and so much that could help us inform our ways of looking in productive and interesting ways. Importantly, not to denigrate the work that has come before or the presentation of people's favourite artists such as Picasso Modigliani. I'm not in the business of... of um, of dismantling or cancelling artists <laughs> who we have, who we find difficult with our contemporary sensibilities. But I wanted to, yeah, sh to find a way of communicating a different way into looking about these and thinking about the way in which women's bodies are presented in that sphere and also how that echoes and influences ways in which they're presented in more fast moving cultural materials such as magazines, fashion photography, social media, music videos, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, I think. I think you do that, getting us to reconsider and, and speaking or adopting a style throughout this book that is very accessible, but, but in which the ideas are big. I think, I think both things happen, and it's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially because we, in, I don't think in our PhD programs, I wasn't at least, we're not trained to have a kind of alternate trade press voice. It's something you very much have to develop. And I imagine you worked with both your agent and your editor in order to really hone this such that it came across this way. Um, I'm trying to think that maybe I'll say just briefly about the overall structure of the book, because you were just now diving into kind of how the book begins and the, this, this setup and this 
anecdote as you, as you kind of began to explain of you being in the gallery, you know, with your child. So there's a preface that begins this book, and then there are four kind of I don't want to say monster chapters because they're not crazy long, but they're they're hegemonic, they're intense, they're big, and they range really widely. And I already hinted at them in the intro. So the first one is called Venus then mothers, then the third chapter, maidens and dead damsels. And then the last chapter is monstrous women, which is followed by a brief epilogue, um, which really nicely kind of ties together everything and puts forward, you know, where do we go from here, which is, I think, a very important thing for a book like this to do. I was struck by a lot of things in the first chapter. Um, and I think we could take this kind of in a lot of different directions, but I almost wonder if I might begin by, since I already was kind of hinting at talking about your style here, I was struck from the get-go in this first chapter about what I would call a kind of almost gentility or a kind of quiet power that your writing has. You are not a sledgehammer. You don't, you do not come out and say, we must do this. We should do this. I mean, I was looking for it. It's very rare. I'll, I'll cite in a, two examples that struck me in this first chapter. You said, I'd like us to think about how pictures of Venus can start conversations about racial and sexual difference. Then just a few pages later, you said, I'd like us to think about how Venus has been employed to make ideal versions of femininity seem normal. And I, you know, I, as someone who's very interested in style and who myself is starting to, to try to write for the larger trade presses, this idea of I'd like us to, as opposed to we must think about, we should begin doing this. How hard was it for you to to find this style? Or is this maybe your natural way of writing? I'm just fascinated by this. Um, well, thank you so much for that for that feedback and that attentive commentary. It's really lovely to, to hear that. And, um, you know, I have to admit that it, it was a natural style that emerged mm. when I was writing this. Um, I was influenced by, um, I read a lot of... Um, sort of uh, narrative nonfiction, creative nonfiction, um, the critical writing that comes from a first-person perspective that blends memoir with um, more critical analysis. Um, and that was a style that I, I wanted to adopt and one that I have enjoyed, one that I enjoy reading as, as a genre in my own, in my own personal reading. So um, that was something that always appealed to me and um, so that was considered I suppose that kind of strategy as a way of communicating but really it was something that that, that did come naturally and I actually found it much easier than writing academic uh, papers <laughs> or writing uh, a PhD thesis it, it mm. felt really liberating to be able to write in this way um, but also attentive to the rigor and um, I think one of the things that really inspired me and continues to inspire me is to take big, complicated, meaty ideas that come from critical theory, that come from philosophy, that come from aesthetics, and to repackage and translate them um, and make them applicable for the everyday. Because I actually really do believe that critical theory, philosophy, and the study of aesthetics has so much that can um, inform and enrich and enliven our relationship with the world around us. Um, 
in a way that doesn't have to be scary and in a way that doesn't require a PhD to even open a book um, about it. So so that's a bit of a, a personal, cru- I don't know if I'd call it a crusade, but it's, it's definitely an ambition that I find fruitful and productive and one that inspires me to, to translate those ideas in that way. Well, I, I think you're doing God's work. I mean, I, I just, and I, you know, I, I'm really happy to hear you say that you think this kind of writing or this kind of writing came more naturally to you than the academic style. It makes me wonder if I spent too long writing in the academic style and now, now I can't go back or something because I think I, I maybe used to have a voice like this that, that, that I'm finding very hard now to find. And maybe for graduate students listening or even undergraduates listening, you know, hear Catherine when she says that this is a style that you should hold on to or that if you feel more comfortable in, you shouldn't let, you know, advisors necessarily convince you that writing that way is not the right way to write. Because I think, Catherine, and what is done, what you do in this book is really important, this accessibility, but also... I mean, the, this book, maybe this is the moment to ask you, I think you said before that you don't think that the ideas in this are necessarily new. And I, I know where you're coming from. And maybe the first chapter on Venus was the one that I felt most, be- because this is my wheelhouse, like, oh, but, you know, I know what she's doing and, and I am aware of most of this kind of theoretical stuff. But I think some of the places you go in the chapters after that and, are new territory, and I think you should give yourself more credit, especially for the range of visual culture objects and images that you draw together in this book. I mean, the first chapter alone, let me just tease it for the readers and then ask you how you come up with these, basically. Um, In this first chapter on Venus alone, you have comparisons that range from the Rockaby Venus, and and you compare that with Hannah Wilkie's Intravenus from the 1990s. You have Ava Gonzalez's beautiful woman awakening, an impressionist picture from 1876, which you compare with Deborah Cartwright's Denica's L.A. Loft, which is very recent from 2020. You know, you're not the first person in art history, obviously, to to make comparisons like these. But these were some of the savviest, juiciest ones I've seen in a long time. I would like to hear again about process. How do you come up with these? Do you have bulletin boards of images? Do you have files? Do you print them out? How do you decide what to include? I'm just, I'm in awe. It's an interesting question. Um, I think it's a lot of the time it's instinctive a lot of the time it's luck um uh one resource that i find um incomparably useful is actually instagram um i think instagram is um a resource for me that i happily can use professionally um in really really productive ways so um it's it's probably the main um platform on which artists share their work where people uh share uh i don't know exhibitions they've been to uh galleries share the work that they're they're putting up so i find that a really rich resource um i suppose it's um yeah it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of instinct and and, and just luck in, fi- in in getting a lucky dip with with sort of trawling through visual material obviously um it takes a long time um having the argument i might have the argument in my head that i want to 
um, sail with. And then it's a question of trying to see if, if, if I can make that work with images that support that, which I suppose is the process of writing an art history essay anyway, isn't it? It's do we start with the argument? Do we start with the images? Um, I think it's a combination of the both of them. And so that's quite interesting to maybe mull on as a question of process. Um, I think... Yeah. I find it really, again, liberating to be able to jump between historical time periods. And often one of the uh, reservations that an academic and scholarly community can have is either we can't use contemporary ideas and methodology for thinking about something from the 15th century and vice versa, that we can't, um, you know, that it, it, it somehow feels sacrilegious to use those theories when, I don't know, high art historical theories for thinking about fast moving culture um, and, and it's problematic for some some members of the scholarly community. Um, I think it's a, it is, um, you know, it's a modern way of doing things um, and it is that kind of ragbag of culture that you have to dig deep into and and, and keep, always keep your eyes open to. So is it an advert, for example, that I might have seen on Twitter or an advert I've seen um, on the bus on on my commute? Or is it a magazine from 20 years ago? You know, it's, mm. it's, it's always looking, I think, for examples of culture. Always looking. That is, that is the job, isn't it? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just a kind of constant, voracious... Using using your eyes and, and, and your brain and thinking. And it, yeah, it never turns off. And you have some very poignant moments in, in this book where you talk about, especially as a mom, trying to hold on to an idea long enough until, say, the, the kids go to bed and you have that time, that precious time. And, you know, that, that can look a lot of different ways, depending on your life situation, whether it's, you know, maybe you're an artist or graduate student working at Starbucks and you have to wait till the end of your shift to hold, you know, to hold on to this thing that someone said or that you saw, or, you know, whatever it may be. But I, I wanted to ask you about Instagram specifically, because you there is a moment in, I think it's in the second chapter on mothers, um, where, again, you do some amazing swinging and ranging from images of the Virgin Mary, quintessential mother, place to begin, especially in analysis of Western European art. But you go, you range all the way to Fergie's music video from MILF, which I don't know whether to thank you or to say, uh, I wish you hadn't pointed me in that direction. I Not that I don't love Fergie or music videos, because I think, you know, that's, that's our realm, but wow. Um, and then you talk about yummy mummies, so-called yummy mummies on oh, Instagram. Yeah. That was and, my, that was a real favorite bit actually oh, to write. It, you know, it's <laughs> things the things from this book have really stuck in my mind. I'll admit we we had some scheduling back and forth where it was hard for us to find a time for this. Um, so I read the book I think about over a month ago, and usually sometimes with these podcasts, Catherine, I would be in trouble in terms of remembering that. But yours, I don't know. I, I think of them like like really good sound bites. I mean, they just they stuck in my head, and you talk in this chapter about mothers, as you're doing these amazing ranging in terms of thinking about how, how this all looks in our culture, you describe Instagram as quote, that ever yielding real time repository of anthropological data. And I went, Oh, I love this. Oh, this is great. I have to ask her about this. You know, this idea of, and you are probably the first person I've interviewed that I'm asking about social media, though I've wanted 
to to push on this because I know so many of the authors I'm talking to are using it. Sometimes your agent or your press is forcing you to use it. Maybe you weren't on there before, but you are now. So you kind of said a little bit about what your relationship is to it, but can you say more? You know, are you using it to to say market of you know a version of yourself as a curator as an author or do you see it more as a, a place like you said in the book as a repository of data as a research place yeah definitely the latter although we are all i think um we all easily fall victim to the um the, the sort of feeling that we need to post a curated version of our lives i mean i'm very much um not a person that likes to to share much in that realm um and there's very rarely any images of me until recently when I've been doing making more digital content and doing some YouTube interviews with artists and writers and other curators um so it's become uh, unavoidable to to have that um but I think definitely the the relationship I have with Instagram is one of uh, a, as an anthropological resource especially because I was writing about archetypes so uh, the focus of my book was to look at how we have these archetypes that exist in our culture as a way of defining women's roles and identity and how um if you know, how diffuse those images are um, across the way we relate to one another and the images of ourselves that we promote and the ones that we value. Um, So it was essential in a way, and and it's such a wonderful, easily accessible resource to look at how are there ways in which women are coding their self-identity that relates back to the Virgin Mary? How are there ways in which women are coding their self-identity in the way they promote and curate themselves on Instagram or sexually market themselves on other channels that relate back to these art historical tropes of Venus that are ring-fenced in a a more of a elite um, realm of knowledge production. So so that was really interesting to me, actually, how Instagram images reflect art history. Um, and sometimes there are moments in which they come together um, in really productive ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more there, though. I feel like, personally, I'm, al- I'm always either totally embracing Instagram and feeling like this is a great thing for me to do when I'm on my breaks from writing or when I'm in between reading, you know, whatever I have to for the day and feeling like I'm overwhelming my, my sensory output mm-hmm. or input yeah. modules yeah. and need to do better with not taking in so much visual material. Um, I would like you, if you don't mind, to say your Instagram handle on here so people can follow you. As we're talking about this, they're probably like, uh, you both should it's say it. It's very so easy. Yeah. It's women in the picture. It's the there same it title as the book. The, so um, the, book. the Instagram account actually precedes the writing of the book. I set up the account, mm-hmm. oh, I, d- I can't remember when. It was probably about five, six years ago. And um, it started off with little sound sort of little sound bites actually to use your phrase that you you used earlier um just images uh with a little quick analysis uh from a feminist slant um pictures of women um from a range of different sources and 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 uh, chronological periods um and then of course then when i got the deal to write the book it then became a really good way to to talk about some of those issues and promote some of those issues and also to be able to support other women so i think one of the really good things which does bear mentioning with instagram and one of the ways in which i have um 
seen the joy and benefit of Instagram, aside from it being a thief of time, which it can be, is that it has connected me with a number of really inspiring women and women who have been really happy to share and celebrate my work um, on their own channels. And and I have really, I, I do feel like I've found you know, five or six, I've connected with five or six people who work within the sector, whether as writers, curators, as artists, um, or who facilitate events, curation in, in contemporary art. And that's been really wonderful. And I, I'm sort of really grateful to Instagram for that, because I think it is a very easy, direct way of communication. You sort of have a portfolio of yourself online in that in 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 a very easily digestible format so people can get a quick idea of who you are and and what you're doing um and where your interests intersect and align and and it, and it has been i found it very productive for my career um but then again as i said i only i only post and i only consume images and and content that is focused very focused on what i'm doing so i try not to let it bleed out into other things like shopping for clothes but I still get spammed with adverts you know none of us are immune to it you know there's kind of parcels where I've been like oh no Instagram purchase that needs to go back (laughs) at a weak moment that's that's a relief to hear that you're not the only one who falls victim to those every once in a while just something I don't don't, they're they're getting too good the algorithm's too good at knowing what it is that we secretly desire and want and will will make us feel whole I this idea, though, that's so well said that it's a that it's a kind of online or virtual portfolio that is particularly interesting in the way that it 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 is both work and it intersects with the personal. And you can make choices about how much of the personal you want to put forward and how much you want it to be about your ideas, about your work, about your successes, your publications, your shows, you know, so on and so forth. And I think how academics manage that blend. <laughs> is quite fascinating because there there is quite a range. And then, of course, there are a lot of academic writers or professors and teachers who are not on Instagram. So it's, it's a range in and of itself. But it sets up perfectly another question that I wanted to ask about the personal in this book. Um, there are what I would describe as personal anecdotes throughout the book. This happens from the very beginning and it goes to the very end. They're they're not constant, but they're threaded through. In the first chapter, I'll just say a few examples. You talk about having a poster of the Rackaby Venus above your bed in a gold frame as a teenager, which made me smile because I think I still have some of the, the Degas paintings that I had in my room as a kid in storage, you know, in the basement, maybe even hanging. Um, In the second chapter, it opens with a really lush description of a park you take your children to and a river that runs underneath it. And I, I won't give it all away and I'll stop there with the anecdotes because I think they're they're special and should be retrieved by the reader as they go. But I wondered, you know, for me, it's interesting to see where the personal intersects with the material you analyze, especially from a feminist or a lived, you know, ph- phenomenologically female standpoint. But... I also wondered how strategic was this? Was it there from the beginning? Was it hard to give into? Was it something your agent or your editor encouraged? You know, for me, I find it very difficult at this point, having it drilled out of me, that the personal should be anywhere in our history, though I think it's everywhere in our history. 
So I was encouraged seeing you do this so fluidly. And I wondered if it was a process to get there. Um, it did. Again, it was something that was always there from the beginning. Um, I I think I it it the whole effort of the book, I think the whole ambition of the book was to open up the space for understanding how the images that we value, that we see and we consume touch us on a, on a really, really deep level. Um, and in order to understand that, we only need to think about the criticism or the very inflammatory, very inflamed responses that erupt whenever there are any interventions into thinking about art from a different viewpoint. And I mention a couple of those in the book. So one of them, one one in the US, one in the UK. Um, In the US, a few years ago, there was a petition to adjust the wall text of a Balthus painting in the Met. Um, And this opened up a real... Uh, sort of volcano of critical analysis, media attention, kickback. Um, these discussions became, um, you know, very, um, very angry and very defensive. And likewise, in the UK, there was another episode where uh, a black British artist, Sonia Boyce, who actually just won um, at the Venice Biennale for the Best Pavilion with GB, um, and uh, she had staged an intervention in the Manchester Art Gallery, which has a historic collection, lots of 19th century work. And she wanted to take down a painting that, um, you know, from a traditional feminist art historical perspective, we might think about in terms of objectification of young women's bodies. Um, It's Hylas and the Nymphs. It's a a painting by William Waterhouse, John William Waterhouse. Um, And she wanted to just leave a space for discussion about what that painting meant in that space and how people felt with it being there or not being there. And again, that opened up a raft of of media discussion and debate um, that was very polarised. So I say those to think about, to illustrate why the personal is really relevant when we're thinking about images, because images condition our personal relationship with ourselves. They give us um, models to follow. They give us models to bolster or models to make us lose our self-confidence. And so I felt that I wanted to really open up that territory of exploring that relationship between our personal relationship with ourselves and the images we consume. So it felt like really natural to talk about things through the lens of my own personal experience. One of the things, which is in chapter three, which was hard to write about, and actually I did have, my editor wasn't sure whether I should keep it in, but it was a uh, example of experiencing sexual assault as a young woman in Italy, where I was in a car crash. I went, you know, I was sort of shaken up. Not, it wasn't enough. I wasn't injured to, enough to go to hospital, but I was uh, shocked and upset. And I was trying to call home at a train station and was visibly really upset. And a police officer invited me into his office and, you know, um, tried to tried to sort of kiss me and tried to um, kind of pursue sexual activity. Um, God, I sound really formal saying that, don't I? It's fair, you know, it, it was something that was really, you know, that really struck me as a young woman. Um, and the inability for me to have been able to protest about that as a foreigner 
in a in a in a in a sort of quite macho country. Um, and so I link that to the normalized images of sexual violence that exist everywhere in our culture like in the city in which that happened to me in the main piazza there is a sculpture of rape there's the you know there is um you go into any of the art galleries in any of our of european art we see images of rape and we open fashion magazines and we see images of sexual violence against women and so i felt that it was that was the one that was really necessary for me to match those dots together to say what would happen if images in our public realm of sexual violence became strange and less normalised than they are, how would that change things for the way in which women feel about sexual violence that happens to them from the micro level to the macro level? If we can lionise it in our monuments of culture, if we can celebrate it on tote bags and toiletries bags, by that I'm thinking about something like Titian's Rape of Europa. If we can make the discussion of those more complex, then how might that have productive impact on the way in which we deal with it in our urgent public conversations that we're having about it? So that was a moment of collision between the personal and the critical art historical that felt really necessary when I write about mothers and mothering that was my favorite and most again personal in a different way to the discussion of sexual violence but that was about exploring the tension between creativity and production intellect between creativity and procreativity between um you know social reproduction with a family and then intellectual production and how artists have been grappling with that. Women artists have been grappling with that, such as Berta Morisot, whose work I found so illuminating for thinking about how I was going through that process myself. So at the beginning of this conversation, I hinted at how I became radicalized when I became pregnant, um, like a year into my PhD program. And how that wasn't received in a very positive way within the university milieu, where I went from being a sort of star student to someone who went to the sidelines as like, oh, you know, that that's that's what she's doing now. So there was this separation between the personal and the intellectual. And I found by looking at Berta Morisot's work and reading Linda Nocklin on Berta Morisot, which was one of the best essays that I've ever read, which is on the wet nurse. And it's about women painting and it's about what's needed, what women need in order to be able to paint and, and the sort of the, um, the, the, the social economies that are necessary for that. So they need someone to look after their child in order to be able to make work about, you know, making work as a mother. Um, so yeah, it all it all sort of that they, it fed into one another in, in so many ways that it felt like that was my story to tell. I think that makes uh, a lot of sense. I'm glad too that you're doing a much better job than I am at describing kind of the content of the book or describing 
very, very, I think, succinctly but impactfully, the the content or, or the way that the, these chapters move in terms of what you're you're actually arguing for. I'm asking for some reason that lately so many questions about style and mechanics and not delving enough into, um, you know, the the actual arguments that you make. Let's maybe stay. Um, on this last chapter, or no, sorry, it's not the last chapter, the Maidens and Dead Damsels chapter. Mm. Um, I'll just pause and say um, that's fascinating in a way that the, the anecdote that you told, which was the one that I was trying to hold back from, I don't know, I feel like that's not my story to tell. And I, I don't know. Oh, no, I don't feel at all. Ple- I mean, I, it's there. I've written about it. So yeah, it's there no, to be I just, talked I, about. I just feel like, if, you know, it's one thing to have it embedded in a book, and it's another thing. I haven't listened to other interviews with you, so if everybody's asking you about it, that would start to feel kind of gross. I imagine, like everybody no, wants actually, to no hear one's more asked about your sexual about assault. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we're all sensitive or too, you know, overly prickly about about asking about this in this day and age. But that was so powerful in that chapter, and it tied together so beautifully, as the whole book does, with you know the personal intersex with works of art that so many of us know in the sense that they're, they're masterpieces, they're very famous, they're on tote bags, you know, they're in pop culture in a way beyond just sitting in museums. And the example here that you open the chapter with is Titian's Rape of Europa, which is in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Um, just the gem, I think, of, of their collection in many ways. And that leads you, as you do, to to explore these tentacles that go out from that painting. I don't think I'll ever get out of my mind that there's a reproduction of a part of that painting on the euro for the, is it for Greece? I Like, mm. this blew my mind. This was upsetting. So it's not a reproduction of specifically of the Titian, but it is a, um, it is an, it is a representation of that mythological story of the rape of Europa which has become symbolic of the political project of the European Union. Um, so it's it's on the back of the Greek two euro coin. Um, there's a sculpture of it in Strasbourg outside the um, parliamentary headquarters or the main parliamentary building of the European Union. And that was really fascinating for me to think about in how, as I mentioned before, how we have images of sexual violence that are normalized and um, made into metaphors of cooperation and of um, a sort of, uh, yeah, cooperation and themes of a greater good. So I think with that story in particular, The Rape of Europa, um, it's taken as the starting point for the European uh, a, a genealogy of Europe. Okay, so um, and if we go back to what the origins of the story is, it's a Middle Eastern woman who is abducted by a European, more aggressive, more powerful man, and he forces her into marriage. Um, again, there's a wider conversation to be had with this that happens in scholarly communities is about what does rape mean in in the mythological world um what does rape mean as a word that derives from the latin term raptus which has been translated as an abduction um as a sort of theft um can we think about it in similar terms and and i feel like that story it, it is always being dissipated with these 
scholarly questions to deflect from what are we thinking about. When we look at that image by Titian, it's of a rape. The great professor Mary Beard, classics professor in the UK, Mary Beard, has talked about how these images are images of sexual violence and we have to look at them in that way. And the thing is, is that looking at them in that way doesn't necessarily have to detract from their pleasure because this was one of the tensions in the book of, you know, um, even when I used to talk about these things in a gallery setting. So I suppose that's also helped with my style if we're thinking about that momentarily, the idea that I have always been worked in gallery education. I've always taught, I've always been an educator. So that has helped me to find a voice of communicating to a public outside of an academic scholarly community and readership. Um, But this idea that it can be productive in doing these 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 things. People often say, "Oh, this is going to ru- don't ruin it for me. Don't ruin Titian. Don't ruin that painting. I don't want to hear it." But actually, um, I I don't think we are ruining anything. I think we're gaining more because this is not about as I said before, cancel culture, it is about looking more deeply to see how these images can help us, inform us. Can they help young people articulate the nuances of sexual violence um, or the atmosphere of sexual violence or sexual aggression that they might be finding themselves in? Can it help us think in more nuanced ways about the language that we use around these things? Um, and the visibility, I mean, at the moment in the UK, we're having a very, there's a very big debate about pornography and the accessibility to pornography and the links between the, you know, wide um, um, accessibility to online pornography for young people and the rise in, in, in you know, sexual crimes among teenagers and adolescents. You know, so I think all of these things can be interconnected in this political spectrum. But you asked me about the European Union, and I went off on a tangent. Then um... that's okay. I think you you fascinatingly answered what I was going to try to ask you as a way of beginning to close. Unfortunately, um, which is sort of what what should we do? You have moments in this book where you kind of hint when you're talking about Gauguin and what the what the National Gallery in London did in terms of that show and you you push and kind of say well was it enough to remake these labels and talk a little bit more about some of the exploitation um, and some of what he did in Tahiti and then again in this in the the chapter where you're talking about the rape of Europa and and how exactly what you were just saying, the absolute entrenchment and hyper-visibility of sexual violence in art and visual culture more broadly. Um, At one point, you do talk about the burning question of what we should do with artworks and public sculptures that contradict the so-called liberal values that we now hold. Should we take them down? You've already said you're against cancel culture, but what would what would it look like to actually make the violence, the sexual violence in particular, so pervasive in visual culture strange? How mm-hmm. do we even begin doing that? Well, I think it's important to recognize that one of the other things that I talk about in the book is the contributions of women artists. So I think in a way that answers the question because, um, you know, with, by each chapter, as you know, has a strategy of outlining the archetype, the troublesome aspects of it, you know, criticizing it, discussing it, but then seeing how women artists have supplemented those archetypes. So I think, 
you know, it, it, it goes down then to a question of gender privilege, where uh, the majority of works in our collections of European Western art are by men. Um, we, you know, we, I, I go over briefly the quite by now well-trodden story of institutional exclusion um, of women to a career as a professional artist, not being allowed to train in professional academies until the very end of the 19th century. So really, we only have just about over 100 years um, to, to work with in which women have legitimately been able to ex- express their view um, as artists. And of course, art is a great way to be able to deal with nuance, isn't it? In a way that writing can't even, you know, art can even go beyond the nuances, the possibility of nuance that writing is fixed by. Um, So I think what we can do is allowing women artists to respond to those works that have been entrenched in our cultural repertoire of images that have conditioned the way we think politically, which have conditioned the way in which women want expect their bodies should look like, the way mothers should behave, and how we can get um, not just women artists, but especially women of colour and marginalised groups to give their version of those tropes, those archetypes, those stories. And actually, I I regret that after I had um, uh, submitted the manuscript, the exhibition in which I talk about Titian's Rape of Europa went back to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. And there was an exhibit to go alongside it, which actually tackled rape and sexual violence. And I must forgive the names of the artists because they momentarily have gone from my mind. I think it's Mary Kelly and a a collaborator. Um, But apologies, I probably got the name wrong there. But there was something that tackled that and looked at it from a different perspective. And I think that is what we need to do. It's the same question of thinking, what do we do about monuments um, that are uh, colonial imperialist heritage? Um, So put the works of women up next to near so so don't take down the works by men leave up the titian rape of europa but i did go and and see and you're and i think mary kelly is right and and then it was sort of like three floors down in the not exactly the basement back area but there was like a video installation where she worked through her problems with the work and, and with sexual assault so that's what you're suggesting is kind of let women add their voices and, and our experiences and visibility to, to nuance greater what the men will just remain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And I think creating spaces, especially for people of colour, because I think that's another thing that I felt very committed to in the book is to exploring how much race is also part of an intersectional question around gender and whose bodies are visible and how those bodies are presented in the public eye, whether that's in media attention of black mothers that I write about, whether that's the invisibility of a black Venus figure, you know, and when that black Venus figure does appear in art history, what it represents and what it signifies in ways which add to and illuminate discussions and discourses about race. Um, So that was, I think, It is a question of access and visibility to contextualise the problematic images of our past, to create new conversations and to continue those conversations and to allow those to feed into the public realm and the personal realm. Mm -hmm. 
new conversations. I am all about it. I think that's the perfect place to land. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to not only write this book, but discuss it with me here after the fact. And Thank you, Alison. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So you've been listening to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alison Lee, and I've been talking to Catherine McCormick about her new book, which I hope everyone goes out and gets a copy of, Women in the Picture, What Culture Does with Female Bodies. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.